燃え上がれガンダムはい。
One is, I think, just the command of, like, genre and tone and production of this episode. You have the first 20 minutes of this thing are this sort of blistering naval war in space. Mm -hmm. And I think it's maybe the best space battle fleet Gundam has ever delivered on screen. It's, like, phenomenally well done. It gets both the, this is the first big space battle in the history of the Universal Century, but also it still has that kind of grounded quality where it's very clearly built on, like, naval warfare. And then the mobile suits come in and changes everything it's very cool and then the last hour of it is basically like a spy story i joked that it's tinker taylor soldier gundam and it does mm -hmm. kind of feel like that at moments that's one of the things i love about that char scene there's a lot of stuff with kaecilia it's very like espionage and politics focused and i think it's just so good but i think the other side of the coin that really makes this episode work is that i think this one really zeroes in on this thematic idea that has been here through all six episodes, but I think gets underlined here more. And some of this is from the manga. Some of this is how I think they've chosen to intercut some things, which is that this war continues and expands because humanity wants it to continue and expand, which leads to this blistering line from Mirai's dad late in the episode that is one of two sort of thesis statements that I think this episode has, where he says humanity hasn't seen how far they can take this yet. And this is an idea I think lesser Gundam series have played with that like war happens because humans are just violent. And I think like that can be a little facile sometimes, but I feel like this one earns it because we've spent six hours or more watching this increasingly violent group of vipers and bloodthirsty maniacs, which very much includes Char, taking the levers of power and pushing them forward full throttle and enough people like basically signing the death pact together that this thing is going to continue. And I think it resonates very strongly with the World War One, World War Two point of reference the original Gundam storytellers would have had. And I think the way it builds the finale of the whole thing around Revel's speech, the Antarctic Treaty, and does it in a way where we cut to every single like major character from the OVA series so far, other than Rambaral and Hamon, who I think were wisely kind of left with their perfect final moment in episode five, sort of implicating everyone and like bringing it all together, I think is surprisingly powerful to me. And I think does a really beautiful job with this. Again, I think a thematic idea that can be facile, but I think there's a legitimate argument in the way it's presented this story in this very historically minded lens. Yeah, and I think the thing I enjoy about it is that I, 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 it's not just that it's that people want the war to happen and that's why it happens. I think the, it, there's a good sense of like there are a lot of different kind of ideologies at play and different people involved in it for different reasons like Kaecilia and a lot of like the Earth Federation people who are to do feel like they are there because they profit off of the war's continuance and that is why they are motivated whereas you have people i think are more legitimately ideologically motivated which would be Guren and revel who to see like what the actual stakes of the war are and the consequences of what could happen if either side wins and like want to bring about an actual victory and then my favorite is Degwin Zabi who is like very naive on the side thinking that there is actually a path towards peace at this point when like they are so far beyond that being uh, feasible that he is like rendered completely like neutered at this point in the story which which tracks so much with what we see um in the rest of Gundam proper with in his like sort of very ceremonial role in what Zeon has now become. Absolutely. I think this this whole episode is about teeing up. Like, 
it's interesting because the big action climax of Gundam the Origin is the very beginning of this episode. Mm-hmm. And then there's re- there are no more action scenes after that. The Battle of Loom is the last bit of like big mobile suit action. And then from that point on, it is like it is espionage, it is politics, but it is all building up to the precipice of the war you saw in Gundam 79. And I think that like notion of this episode being a dramatization of this tipping point moment where there were two roads to take and one was very clearly taken and that is the path that everyone's going to have to walk in the original story this is why Gundam the Origin is the best prequel I've ever seen it is just so well balanced to I think lead you to the door of the story in such a compelling way on its own terms yeah definitely yeah so there are a million things we could start with with this episode uh, should we just begin with the battle itself, the Battle of Loom, which we got a little bit of Char's side of it in episode five, but now we get, they, they focus a little more on the Federation side in part six, I would say mainly so that you can get all the crazy money shots of people being terrified of Zaku's as they mm-hmm. rain hell down upon them. <laughs> yeah, because this is kind of like the previous episode, this is a overall a quite close adaptation of the volume of the manga that this is adapting, which is the second part of the loom arc um because the end if you people remember the end of episode five it with char's fantastic line about you know um kneel before me god that is a, a a sequence added into the anime in order to give that episode like a really powerful ending um but where this starts with the fleet battle and um dozel's whole strategy of like hiding and bringing his fleet around in in this single file line and then the um, Zaku's flanking them all that is stuff that happens at the beginning of the volume in the manga and yeah this is I think as you said at the top of the episode Jonathan is and I would agree the best naval battle like it's certainly it's like the most full-bodied naval battle we've ever seen in Gundam because usually the naval battle stuff is stuff you get like little glimpses of there are only a couple of series that really commit to it like Iron-Blooded Orphans is one of the few that really shows like a full naval conflict but in that it's usually like here's our characters who have like one or two ships and they're fighting like a larger group of ships whereas this is here's two full fleets going at each other and um one is using much more creative very desperate tactics and has their like sort of ace in the hole the zaku to win the day and then the federation are very like stayed in like these very sort of like what feel very old school, very conventional. We're putting all our ships into this very standard formation. We're sitting back here. We don't want to like really risk anything and like the military tactics. And this is like very echoes a lot of stuff from World War One and World War Two of where the much more like radical, aggressive military tactics completely demolish this like very, you know, sort of like peacetime era like idea of what warfare looks like where these are all the earth federation are all people who have been trained in academies completely abstract from any actual conflict most of them are just you know they're admirals because that's what their family has been forever and like that's very much the sense you get um and seeing these like two versions of war clash and the much more aggressive technologically advanced one win out over the much more um sort of um the larger force that is more populated and stuff um it's just i think a very satisfying dramatization of this kind of war that we have seen um saw multiple times in the 20th century yeah it's basically a 20 minute sequence because this episode has the shortest recap it's only four and a half minutes so yep. we get a nice short little recap which means this is like 
easily the longest episode of The Origin. Mm-hmm. It's a full feature-length movie, basically. It's 80 minutes plus without the recap. Um, and so the first 20 minutes after that recap uh, are the battle. So it's a solid 20 minutes of action. And it is, one, it just looks like a scene where Sunrise basically opened a Scrooge McDuck vault and let the animators mm-hmm. go in there because it is lush as lush can be. It is beautifully animated. It makes phenomenal use of both CGI and hand-drawn techniques all together in this. It starts with that very sort of traditional fleet battle, and there's there's still such... I love that it's not just that, like, they ignore the fleet battle to focus on the mobile suit part of it. There's still, like, Dozel has this big strategy of he sacrifices some ships to the TNM fleet, which convinces them that Dozel is going to retreat, but what he actually does is he makes this circle maneuver back around to the Revel fleet, going in single file, and then he fans out, and you have that amazing first volley where they fan out and just start volleying all of the ships, and there's that great moment where you have him pass over and Revel looks up and sees Dozel looking down at Mm -hmm. him. There's a lot of... General Revel might be my favorite character in this episode. He has so much good stuff. Um, uh-huh. This is very much General Revel's episode, um, but I love that moment. So you have all of that kind of stuff going on, of like the fleet battle, and then I think the way they handle the mobile suit part of it, where it just slowly, because it kind of does it from the Fed point of view, where it's slowly ratcheting up the tension of like, what's the play here by Zeon? And then of course the Red Comet comes in and starts blowing up ships left and right, and they can't figure out what's doing it, and then all of the Zaku's come in. And you have stuff like the 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 black tristars cutting the 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 revels ship the like the ananke in half with a heat axe because they fucking can and it looks cool but it's also terrifying and there's shots of like you know people in the ships like looking up as a zaku lands on them and you get the red eye as like god the red eye of the zaku is one of the best decisions mm-hmm. that anyone's ever made in the design of anything it's just a very like intimidating crazy impressive battle scene that feels like it's out of like you know this is worthy of like a lord of the rings or something it's just animated yeah it's it is definitely one of those of where in the manga it is like i mean it's a pretty involved battle sequence in the manga also but this is where as we've seen in other episodes like the animators really get to just kind of go to town and they're just some like very like egregious big crazy sequences um involving all our other characters like Shar gets a bunch of really fucking crazy shit to do um yeah i think my favorite part is when i think it's mash from the black tristars has the big like it's a giant double-handed heat hawk that has two like boosters on the back of it like it's the gun hammer that the tornade gundam uses or some shit and just like it like i like the way it's animated is it's kind of like the axe is dragging his zaku with the amount of thrust and the zaku's thrusters are on almost like to keep it slightly in control like there's something right. of like the sense of weight and momentum um in the 3d animation is so well like studied it's that thing that like gundam typically does incredibly well which is like understanding some of like the like ways in which zero gravity movement works at least in like a movie-esque fashion certainly like in terms of making it feel very kind of grounded and realistic in the physics and so seeing the like thrusters interplay as he's like kind of almost spinning out of control with this giant crazy axe that has rocket engines on it and barely getting it in control and basically cutting the entire ship in half um, there's lots of really juicy, meaty sequences like that in the in this opening twenty minutes. The big standout Char sequence here is where he he notes to himself, "I have three rounds left. That should be enough for two ships." Mm-hmm. And he blows up one. He with two rounds. He has one round left. 
he uses a heat axe to make this like strategic cut and then he fires one more into the engine of the ship and blows it up and we cut over to Kozen, the guy who is mm-hmm. one of Ron Burrell's buddies who sees it and is like well I'm useless there's nothing I can do here with that guy on the field and so he comes up to Shar and says hey I have an extra clip remaining do you want it and Shar says no you should focus on your own glory and then he has this amazing line where he says work hard enough for the lieutenant who was unable to join us and flies mm-hmm. off reminding you that Shar, among many other things is a petty bitch yes yeah uh, it's like Shar's. <laughs> yeah he, he both like gets they get put in this little snide remark and it's the way in which he's like ah, i could go take out probably some more ships i don't even need this fucking rocket launcher um is part of the implication there also that is yeah fucking hilarious there's, like there's... this is just the happiest we have ever seen Shar <laughs> in his entire life like this is this is where we get the like you know, when we talked in like during Zeta Gundam and stuff with his Quattro Vagina persona of how much like this is the person that Char wants to be 100% of the time. This is what he loves doing. He loves being in his big, fancy, ridiculous red robot with his big fucking unicorn horn and flying around and doing crazy shit. And it's just he loves living on the edge, being this kind of like, you know, the, you know, the Red Baron soldier ace type character. And this is just what he wants to be in life. Um, and it's like very it's something I think that captures so much about his character here is the just the sheer amount of joy he has in in inflicting his like power and mastery over all these other people I mean I think it's one you know it's an unspoken thing that is in this episode is that this is like the peak moment of Char's life yeah because right after this episode ends he's about to be humiliated over and over and over again and lose his position in all of this stuff right Mm-hmm. And go down a very different path. Um, but at this moment, he is on the top of his own fucking world. And he could not be happier. You have all those amazing shots of him zipping through the sky as the red comet. You you have the black tri-stars being the ones to sort of give him his name. Of like, he looked, being like, he looks like a red comet up there. Yep. You know, while they're all mad at him because... But goddammit, he's so good. They can't they can't hate him too much. It's, it's amazing. Um... But I think I, I like that it's not just Char. I like that you get you know Mash doing the thing with the fucking you know heat axe. It's it's there's so much good stuff. Yeah, and then also amidst the sequence, you have a little stuff with um Ryu. Our our, our I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, wayward wayward pilot from original Gundam who is here at the battle. This is all stuff that's in the manga, um as well. That he is the he actually is the first pers- person to discover that the. Um, that Doza's fleet has actually flanked around the two Rebels' fleet, um, but can't get back in time. And there's a, a lot of good stuff of kind of seeing the beginning of the fight from his perspective and then him trying to dock and not being able to and being, like, flung out into space where he has um, this, like, realization that I think, like, I, I don't know if I really love the full way that the anime portrays it because I think some of, like, the way it's performed it feels it's very different to how I kind of read the lines in my head when I was reading the manga, um, but of him floating amongst this debris, basically calling himself like, Oh, I'm just going to be another piece of trash in the pile out here in space. Um, and him floating like that for a while. And then like slowly crawling back the will to like live and try to fight and trying to get the dude with the classes. Um, but it's, I, I like Ryu's role in this as just like kind of this POV from the Federation side, seeing how, immediately out of control the battle goes and and how uh, um like overpowered the federation is as soon as the conflict starts yeah i i like those scenes i think it's something that works much better in the manga because ryu 
I mean, one, this is a rewrite of Ryu's backstory because Ryu was Mm -hmm. not initially at the Battle of Loom. And I actually was watching some of First Gundam last night. He's someone who has only ever done two, you know, simulations is what they say in in the anime. So, like, this is different for him. In the manga, though, Ryu overall is beefed up as a character in a lot of ways. Like, they beef up his relationship with Hayato. They do a lot of stuff. They make him a little more experienced so that when you get this in the origin, it makes more sense. It feels more seated. It felt a little out of the blue when I first watched it three years ago. It still feels a little out of the blue now. And like it being Ryu, I think the voice, it's its a recast again. It's a guy named Miyu Tanaka does this. And I think he's a younger actor, but he does this like kind of, I think the voice he's trying to do for Ryu makes him sound weirdly old. And so like almost like it would be Ryu's dad here or something. Like uh-huh. I think it's a little off. And overall, I just think the scene, it feels like a, tiny bit of a non sequitur whereas like i think i think the ova might have been better served here just having an original character here who isn't someone from first gundam because i think it distracts a little bit when there isn't that like the ties in the manga to kind of like seed it in there i don't know that was kind of my feeling it felt much more natural to me reading it in the manga than it does watching it in the anime yeah no i definitely agree that like i like the dynamic because also since in the manga there's not as much of the like big crazy battle stuff i mean there is still a lot of it but since it's it's you know not animation animation gets to like really go over the top with some of that stuff there is more of a sense of you seeing a lot of the battle basically from his pov um that works like that in the manga and then yeah again like i i agree with you with the voice doesn't work for me and i feel like it's something where as a like cameo the vocal performance would be fine but but there is but I, in the manga, I really love the sequence of where he is stranded in space in his little monologue he has. Um, and it just, the way it's performed in the anime, that monologue falls like completely flat for me. Um, so yeah, I think I'm with you that that it's, the way it's implemented in the OVA is rough. Um, but the manga version of that sequence, I really like. Yeah, I would agree with that. One moment I forgot to say that I just absolutely love is that when you when the, the Federation people on the ship's first see a zaku flying through the air you have one of them looks out the window and says are those people and then a zaku comes Uh up and like he sees the eye and and gets killed i love that idea i love them you know they have never seen mobile suits in combat and they go what is that is that are those oh god right it's it's very good yeah Although I think that's one of those things that, like, the way that they've messed with the timeline, it always is, like, it's hard to notice. Like, does it make sense that they would be so surprised by the deployment of mobile suits since, like, mobile suits have been used multiple times in combat at this point, at those colonies and stuff, and you guys have your own mobile suits in the gun cannons? There's some of that stuff that, like, feels like it feels... It feels a little bit off to me because of how much, like, the the history of this stuff has been retconned, um, not just by the origin, but, like, over the years with the movies and different versions of the story have always kind mm. of changed a little bit of, like, where and how much mobile suits have been involved. Because the original idea is that, like, this is basically the first time that mobile suits have ever been used on, in combat at all. Um, and so it would make sense for it to be super surprising. Whereas here, there's something about that sequence that I like it but it doesn't feel like it's totally like connects to the timeline we've seen as presented by the origin with how prevalent mobile suits have already become before the battle of loom starts. Here's what I would say. If it were general revel saying that it would make no sense because Mm -hmm. he's cued into all of this. It's a random like foot soldier on the ship who is probably not privy to seeing some of the other stuff, like certainly not the battle on the moon or something like that. 
you, I mean, you are right that obviously, and this this would be an inconsistency even in First Gundam that the mobile suits were used for stuff like the colony drop, which happens before Loom. So they have been out there before. But I, I think it gets the overall effect of this is the first time they are used en masse as an attack fleet versus ships in space. So it worked for me in that sense. Yeah, I think I think there's just something about like the way that that seed, like the specific wording and the way it's performed makes it feel like it's supposed to be, oh my God, they're using mobile suits rather than it's like i can't believe they're using mobile suits in this way like there's like a right. nuance in that difference that for me like it maybe kind of raised my eyebrow a bit because it just felt like it didn't fit the entirely like the timeline because you're right like technically a like random sailor on this ship maybe wouldn't know all of that stuff but that also is like as like a storytelling tool that feels like a weird thing that like have to make that limited leap of like what how much would this random guy have known about the degree to which Zaku's have been deployed versus like what we have seen and how much we have seen them already be used in the war um i just thought it was like a little bit off well because after this we get a series of scenes with Giran zabi one with kaecilia one with degwin and i know we have sung the phrase praises of ginga banjo all over uh -huh. all six episodes of this thing I think his best work is in this one. He has so many good scenes because he is in he is now like fully in the Giran Zabi from Gundam 79 mode where the war is on, he's on top and he thinks no one and nothing can touch him and I kind of love this mode of and I think Ginga Banjo is so good at this of he is genuinely intimidating but he's also a fucking idiot. And like yes. that is kind of the I feel like that is the purpose of the scene with Kaecilia, which the scene with Kaecilia is obviously foreshadowing to when Kaecilia is going to kill Girin in Gundam seventy nine, because in this moment you have Kaecilia realize you had the great Degwin out there in front of the TNM ships, in, in front of the TNM fleet, and she says, What if they had decided to make a suicide run? And Girin says, I think you know what would have happened. And Kaecilia pulls on the mask for actually the first time in the origin and is like, mm -hmm. this motherfucker. And what's great about that scene is that it's followed by this little moment where you do see Admiral TNM in the TNM fleet. He's uh, he's looking at the great Degwin. They're kind of in this standoff. And basically he's presented with this choice of, we don't know how many ships they have here, but we could probably destroy them. And then Xeon, Zoom City is undefended we could end the war and they're but they're wondering could it be a trap because the great degwin is out here how why would they ever do that and it's basically a fake out maneuver the great degwin is there to scare tnm and it works because this is one thing Girin is right about which is that the federation are cowards and hypocrites <laughs> and i think that's a good moment yeah and i think this is actually like one place where i think the the anime improves a little bit on the manga by adding that scene because all that stuff happens in the manga except for you don't actually see the scene from TNM's perspective. Um, you just get it all in dialogue between Girin and Cassilia, and then you have uh, Degwin and Garma on the ship, where Garma is, like, freaking the fuck out constantly, and he's so hyper, and Degwin's calming him down and talking him through, like, the potential pathways that this could go, and he says, like, but the TNM fleet is still in front of us. If they do, like, a kind of, like, a suicidal charge, and they decide to commit their forces um, fully here, like, we could still be killed, and we might lose this war. Um, and immediately after, in the manga, immediately after he says that, a guy comes in and announces that the TNM fleet has turned around and is retreating. Whereas in the anime, they add in that little scene where you see from TNM's perspective, which I like in that it gives you that, like, um feeling of the different perspective that the federation in the zeon has right that zeon is fighting a war of pure desperation 
whereas like the earth federation doesn't need to be desperate like if they were being desperate they might have ended the war right there but nobody wants to go charge in and die if they don't have to so the federation is like eh, like we can turn around as he says like we we'll fight another day um like the the federation has such a massive resource advantage over the zeons that they can afford to fight a, a war of attrition the way that zeon can't um so even though it is a thing that if he had committed his forces he maybe could have ended the war there like almost certainly the admiral would have been killed in that attack it's like yeah i don't need i don't need to worry about that kind of stuff and i think adding in that little scene with tnm i really like i think fleshes out the full dynamics of that moment it's surprising that's not in the manga because one of my favorite things in the manga is how much time Yasuhiko spends with some of the admirals. Like, mm -hmm. TNM is more of a character. Joaquin is way more of a character in yeah. the manga and has really cool stuff. Um, so it's a little surprise. I forgot that that isn't in the manga, but it's a very good little moment. You also have uh, Giran with Degwin in a scene that foreshadows their scene from Gundam 79 where they have the, the talk about Hitler where Degwin invokes it in a slightly different way here, where Giren, where Degwin is like, all right, time to sue for peace. And Giren's like, fuck off, no one's suing for peace. And Degwin says, well, you're acting like a tyrant like Napoleon or Hitler who didn't know when enough was enough. And then Giren has this just great line where he says, the failures of ancient history offer us no lessons. And then he talks about, we're going to go forward, forward, tada maie, maie. And Ginga Banjo is just very, very good is what I kept writing in my notes. Yeah, because, yeah, because... This is where, yeah, as you say, they foreshadow that scene because that's the the scene from the anime where Degwin makes the full Hitler comparison and uh, and Guerin doesn't know anything about Hitler and then like the the end of that scene being Degwin being Hitler lost he died um, yeah. and Guerin just like storming out uh, annoyed um, that scene is still in the manga so it is also like presaging the scene quite literally it's not just a reference to that scene in the anime or anything. Um, but yes, I like the the consistency of here Giran, Giran's sort of portrayal and that this is where he becomes the Giran Zabi we know, right? This is where he becomes the Hitler analog fully. Uh, I think like it's this and then the scene afterwards where he's giving the speech toward to all the soldiers is he has like fully drunk his own Kool-Aid. I, I always get the impression that with Giran he used the sort of master race um, rhetoric around new types and space noise and all of that purely as a propaganda tool originally. And I think like slowly over time, because every time he's pushed the boundaries a little bit, he's gotten away with it, that he's become so kind of like drunk on his own power and authority. That I think at this point he like has fully believes in it and he fully believes in his own like inherent superiority and the superiority of the people that choose to follow him, whether or not they're actually technically space noids as we'll talk about where there's a contrast between who he considers space noids that are important. And then other two people are also space noids. It's like, eh, it's fine if we kill people in that colony, whatever, even though, you know, there's a clear hypocrisy in that, in the philosophy he's espousing. Um, but I think that this dynamic of him having fully taken control of the reins of power and being completely ignorant of the like ways in which this is basically inevitably going to go wrong and Degwin sitting there on his throne, who Degwin is an academic. He is someone who studied history. He knows all this stuff. He knows exactly where this is leading, but he's powerless to do anything about it. It's very good. And, and overall, like, and it is a good historical analog. I mean, Guerin is Hitler at this point in what mm -hmm. he is doing in the, in the, like, the ambition is so high, it's nondescript also, right? Like, it is, yeah. 
evil without an end point, right? Like, and this is very true, I think, in Gundam 79, is I don't know what Yuren's end point is, other than, like, annihilation of all the humans on Earth at a certain point. Like, there is, it's so, and it, there's always another step. There, there can't be an end point for this ideology, because that ideology relies on there being an enemy, right? Yes, yeah. So he's he's constantly moving his own goal posts back and back and back and back. And this is one of the things that makes like Degwin's bid for peace like very limp and like ineffectual. Is that I think he's completely lost sight of like how severe it's gotten with Giran. And I think Revel is like one of the only people who kind of understands. Oh shit! Like this is a war we have to actually see through to the end because this is not a war that people can afford to lose. Right. Yeah. That's the whole. I mean, that's the impact of the end of this. This, I think this episode overall, and I think it's through the character of Revel and where we go with the Antarctic speech, is very good at reorienting us to the position of Gundam 79, which is like, the Federation ain't perfect, but those Zeons need to fucking lose. <laughs> you know, like this this needs to end. Yeah, because there's one beat that I think we kind of skipped over a little bit in the fight earlier. And I think it's partially because I think the anime doesn't emphasize it as um, much as the manga does, because I think it's a really important moment for Revel. Um, but it's when the swarm of Zaku's comes in and flanks the fleet and Revel at that moment realizes they have basically lost the battle. And he has this line where he says, Zeon, Osotobeshi, like basically Zeon is a thing to be feared. And he says the line in that moment in the anime, but I think with the manga being, you know, just like, you know, snapshots of individual moments, there's a lot of weight on that moment in the manga that has always read to me as like, that is the moment where Revel fully realizes how thoroughly he has underestimated what he's fighting and like how severe this war actually is that like this is how desperate Zeon is this is how much they're committing themselves and this is how like far they're willing to push themselves um and that i think he sees in that moment like oh this is not a thing that's going to end in peace like in, in like a peace treaty this is not a thing that's going to like end in just like giving Zeon its own independence this is not a war for independence anymore we're so far beyond that point. I think that, like it's that moment when he says Zion Osotubeshi is where he is committed to I have to I have to put an end to this war because if we lose, it could mean like basically extermination of Earthnoids in like life on Earth as as we have known it. Revel is low key and always has been one of my favorite side characters in Gundam. Because yeah. I think he's so fascinating because in Gundam 79 he is not a perfect man, but he is one of the few adults you meet who kind of gets it. I think he yes. gets a sense of, like, he he gets... One, I think he has an actual empathy for, like, Amuro and friends in their situation that other adults don't have. But he also has an understanding of, like, the new type of it all and, like, what's going on. And he's interested in it. But he is also, like, brave and righteous in a way that you understand why everyone stands to attention when he comes in a room it's not just out of courtesy it's out of like he actually commands that he is a he has a goodness and a righteousness to him as a soldier and i like the 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 arc that is traced in the origin is subtle but i like that it's from he's sort of a background element because he's not the top dog in the military yet in the origin mm -hmm. he's up there but he's not the absolute top of it and he's kind of feeling it out and he feels a little asleep at the helm because he's not sure where this is going and then in this episode, you see him wake up fully until he gives that speech and changes the course of human history, right? And I think that is yeah. like, it's such an interesting, it's it's the kind of thing where you want to read, like, what does the biography in the world of Gundam in like 
you know, Universal Century double 100, like, or zero 100. What does that look like for Revel? Because he would be such a key, interesting figure in its history, you know? Yeah, because there's something about him, yeah, that I've always loved. There's, like, an inscrutability to the character that, because he's always been a supporting character, even here where he's, like, given more focus than he's ever been given in anything else, he still is, like, on the sidelines. You know, we don't get, like, the story from his POV. We don't, like, see his family or his, his background or anything and there's also something about his design I've always just adored um, that adds to his inscrutability because he's, you know, his face is completely covered um, in his beard and all that stuff. He's got this whole, like, kind of Santa Claus look um, going on. But he is the, like, one person amongst the Federation that feels like is actually motivated legitimately, like, by principle and not by greed or just, like, circumstance. Um, that's something that we see consistently both in original Gundam and then also in the origin where every time we basically see any other person who's like a member of the top Admiralty, they always feel kind of spineless as Guren likes to describe them. Um, or they're, you know, they're there to like make a buck and they're only in that position probably through like nepotism effectively is always what it's felt that it's just, you know, very corrupt Federation that has existed for such a long time has not been meaningfully challenged by anything in like you know over probably like hundreds of years and it's just allowed to sort of like steep in its own corrupt decadence and and revel is just this one rare man who is able to like work his way up enough to a position of power that when like this moment of history kind of like happens he's able to you know use that to leverage enough power to fight um and he's like the only person in the federation in any uc gundam thing that is ever like that right it's like it's everyone else that's in the member of the top admiralty is always like just a complete scumbag from this point on that allows like the titans to come about and stuff like that and and it's you know like probably in many ways the worst thing that happened in the history of this world is that rebel gets killed at the end of the war because i bet that <laughs> the federation afterwards yeah. would have been a much better place if rebel had still been there to like influence it I mean, he probably would have been, like, the Ulysses S. Grant of that world, of, like, he yeah. would have become president or something and, like, had um, uh, the Ulysses S. Grant, president whose reputation has been historically salvaged in recent years for some uh -huh. of the better stuff he did. <laughs> um, you know, um, it, it turns out all the Ulysses S. Grant was a bad president was Southern propaganda <laughs> because he's the guy Weird. who defeated them. Yeah. Weird how that happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, I mean, he looks like Ulysses S. Grant. I wonder if that's, like, uh -huh. a conscious influence on it almost you know he has that very um you know wartime leader general kind of thing anyway um very cool character we will have much more to say about him when we get to the end of the episode yep i also wanted to talk about sean in this moment where degwin and Girin are talking after Girin leaves the room you have kaecilia come out from behind yes. the curtain where behind where degwin is sitting like she's the fucking phantom of the opera she's got her stupid mask on it's so great you know Girin basically tells her like he has she he says he has become a fiend no one can stop him but you and she has this line where she says your kaecilia will always be by your side and i really like that moment setting up this dynamic that will i mean eventually it'll end the war right it's the thing mm -hmm. that will lead her to kill Girin and everything to fall apart um is because her real loyalties really begin and end with herself but she does have affection for her father um even if she does not always do what is in his best interests um she's more on much more on his side than Giren's. yeah it is an interesting i think wrinkle that the origin presents of where i think like it, it opens up a question of like how much 
does Cassilia's loyalties legitimately lie with her father and how much of that is like a play because she likes being in the shadows and manipulate things and like her father is a figurehead right I mean that's what he is at this point in Sion is he's a figurehead he's not like a legitimate political power um in that like he's not the person who actually makes any of the decisions of things that happen that's like Girin foremost and then Cassilia under that um because in the original Gundam like I always just read it completely as like Cassilia legitimately has affection for her father and it's like legitimately motivated um to to act because she sees how monstrous Giran has become through that action whereas in origin i feel like some of the stuff because after this point she says Cassilia will always be by her side but then she immediately starts acting behind the scenes to perpetuate the war and yes, is not exactly. doing anything to move against Giran or to end the war that i think like adds this other wrinkle of how much of that relationship with her father is that from like from 0079 Gundam or is it being sort of more reframed here as another put on that she has um, for like another like play, another plan, another scapegoat in manipulating her father the way she manipulates everybody else? Well, because the manga, if you haven't read it, some of the stuff it does at the Battle of Abaoku, yeah, I think is really smart in showing that like she has additional reasons for wanting Girin dead beyond he killed her dad that is one i do think like in general she probably does have a certain code of like it's bad to kill your dad right like because she is someone who operates behind the scenes in a certain way but also like that is a good pretense for her to take out a gun and shoot Giran in the head and then take command at this pivotal moment and there's so much extra stuff done in the origin about the overall like politics and strategy that you can read it one of two ways or a little bit of both right yeah, because I'll say that when I read the manga, I very much, when I got to that sequence, read it as a more, um, the death of her father is like the political excuse she needed to leverage that as to be able to, use, to assassinate Giran and then leverage that as like a legitimate political act rather than right. it just being a thing of her, like a mad grab for power, which I think it is a mad grab for power. Um, yes. I, I like, I, I kind of, honestly, I don't really read it too much as of her actually having a commitment to her father because i think if there's too much that she does that clearly moves against degwin's interests i think for me to read it as being she's out for she's like that she's actually by his side um right I, she doesn't feel like that to me at least well and this is one place where the ova has a little bit of trouble not by anything it does wrong but because it doesn't have the rest of the manga mm -hmm. surrounding it so honestly because of the way the the anime the ova calls to the 79 anime a lot Sometimes you're thinking more of Kaecilia's original characterization, whereas this is all plucked from a story where, as you say, she does have a slightly different characterization in Yasuhiko's telling, which is totally yeah. fine, but it's a little more... Because I agree. I, I think I probably agree with you. You've read the manga much more recently. You just read it, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm kind of working on... There's five different versions of the mm -hmm. Gundam story in my head as I'm watching this. <laughs> so yeah, because I, I will probably... say that in the order, like in this OVA, I do think that like the scene that happens after this with Makave, I think like in the anime, it reads slightly weird to me for this exact reason, because it's yes. like the juxtaposition with this, like I am always by your side, which feels like this is a thing that like genuinely 0079 original version of Cassilia, like genuinely would say that and actually mean it. Um, whereas this Cassilia, it's like in again and like in stuff that's also happened before this in the manga as you're getting up to it there's more of that where you feel that she is very much a person that is out entirely for herself she's just better at disguising it than Guren is 
Um, but I think not all that characterization is like fully here yet in the anime version. So there's like a little bit of a disconnect there. Yeah. Which is, it's, and that's okay. It's a weird, yeah. it's a weird overall production. And like, I don't, you know, I like the version in the manga and I like the version in the anime and I don't think there's like one true version, but like this, this OVA exists in this kind of weird in between space, yeah. which is a little inevitable. It's, it's not a bad thing, but it's interesting. Um, you have this whole amazing scene in Daikun Hall, which is the big location where, like, in the original anime, you have Garma's funeral and stuff. And I think this version is what Yasuhiko draws in the manga, where he's made it a little bit crazier and even more over the top and gnarly. And I think that's such a cool location. You mm -hmm. see it several times in the manga, and I love that we get this big scene here. And this is where they hold the victory celebration where Char comes in and is announced as the Ace of Aces, the Red Comet, the dashing cape of a field officer is now fluttering on his shoulders and everyone is annoyed because all the girls are running to Char, who is very bemused and all the black tri-stars are very angry and I think this is a very good scene. Yeah, I, I love everything in this whole sequence. Um, like, let's let's just focus on the Char and Garma of it because I love the Char and Garma interaction. So good. <laughs> because you yes. also we, there was a brief scene earlier where Garma is in an argument with uh, uh, Dozol, and Garma wants to get you know put into the position that we, he eventually is put into, which is he is part of the Earth um, invasion forces, um, and so he's part of or he's part of like the land troops or whatever that are going to do a colony operation, and then after that he will be put onto Earth. Um, and so he's, he's been put into a position that he actually wants to be that will allow him to gain like legitimate military prestige through his own accomplishments, which is what he wants. They can compete with Char. And then at the party, you know, Char is there getting fawned over by like every woman basically at the party. And then Garma walks up and I love the way the anime does it of where there's all these women around him. And then Garma walks up and just like, I, I re-round and watch the scene like three or four times just to watch the expressions on all the different background characters of like, it basically feels like <laughs> all those women are are like secret like otaku ladies that like totally ship Shar and Garma also because it's like they're all <laughs> sit back watching this conversation with utter fascination on their faces um, because it's like, because they realize that the one true ship has arrived and they're not a part of it and they just get to like sit back and admire as Shar and Garma sort of spar with each other. Um, and Garma bragging about the fact that he's going to be on Earth and, oh, I've got my entire command under me. And Shar is saying, it's like, oh, it's going to be like dirty and bloody work, not fitting like a young, uh, you know, a rich boy like you. Um, it's just that whole scene, I think is just fucking fantastic. It's a fantastic scene. It's great in the manga where you have this amazing panel that it's almost a full page panel that ends it of the two of them looking at each other longingly uh -huh. um you know garma with his like look has to look up at char a little bit because char's taller and char's looking down in bemusement and they're both holding a drink and the anime has a fucking field day with that panel turning it into like 10 different shots yes. of them looking at each other and just the expressions on their faces are so good in the anime it really does feel like a missing scene from first gundam that we didn't see of the yeah. two of them having their fun verbal sparring but now with the full context the origin has given about how they got to that point and it just that's one of those prequel elements that just adds so much and fits you don't have to adjust anything about first gundam it just slots right in so perfectly to everything first gundam does with those characters you know yeah and there are like there's a couple of things that the anime version does here as well where i think it adds um a bit more sort of like 
direct foreshadowing into because it's you know again the positioning of all this stuff is different because in the manga this is after garma has already been killed by char whereas in this anime version we're seeing it entirely as a prequel so they add in a little bit more of like kind of shots that feel like it's clearly foreshadowing char thinking about killing garma in particular they put a really good one on char has a line where he says it's a dangerous assignment um and the shot of him in the anime as he says that is him like kind of looking down on him at Garma with like a slight smirk on Char's face that basically looks like the expression he has when like he fucking does the pettiest thing Char has ever done in Gundam, which is with the unplugging cable. The, the comm, <laughs> yeah, the communications cable and like him just sort of like looking down at it and smirking as Garma's like desperately trying to call in and get uh, reinforcements. <laughs> um, and he, they just like, you know, animate him to like kind of make that more of a direct foreshadowing or kind of call back to those um, elements. And I love that. Like, I just love how petty and fucking um, how how Sharma this scene is. It just encapsulates <laughs> everything that's fun about their relationship dynamic in this one dumb party scene. I don't know how the Gundam Cafe in Japan never had an item on its menu called Sharma, which was shawarma, but it's yeah. it's like in the it's like a bunch of like pieces of chicken in the sauce, like in the shape of Shar and Garma and a heart together. It's Sharma. Oh, they're so good. I love it. This whole this whole scene is great. I love that like. It's just low-key playing some Beethoven in the background of this uh -huh. scene because all the Xeon nobles like to pretend they're so high and mighty, you know? Um, original Gundam 79 would do some of the, like, kind of fake classical in some of those scenes. So I think it's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. The and then thing. the other side of the scene is Girin. Like, through all of this stuff, Girin is giving this speech that is his full-on Hitler master race speech, right? Yes. Like, this is where his rhetoric has completely turned to, we are the space noids, we are the people who are, like, inheriting the will of Daikun, we are, like, the superior race, um, and we must, like, wipe out, basically, the people on Earth um, and, and bring about, like, a true and ultimate victory. And I think the... One thing I think the anime is, with its editing, able to put an even sharper point on this is that that entire speech about space noid superiority is immediately juxtaposed with Garma being sent to this one of the other colonies at Loom that has not been totally subjugated yet and going into the colony with a fleet of troops and like some Zakus and tanks and stuff and just killing people. Um, and just basically massacring what little like kind of guerrilla resistance is there in a bunch of the citizens. And you just see a bunch of like innocent civilians running away, trying to escape, many of them getting killed. And like the immediate, you know, hypocrisy that's drawn there, which is true of any of these kinds of fascist ideologies of like the master race or whatever, is that those lines that are drawn by that ideology are completely arbitrary and they extend as far as the whim of the person who is drawing them and using it as a propaganda tool. And so, you know, the immediate contrast of we are like the superior race, we're the space noids, like we are better than anybody else. Anyways, now we're murdering a bunch of other space noids over here. And let's not think about the hypocritical elements of that in our own ideology. Um, like it's a very, I think, like sharp and very powerful juxtaposition. Oh, absolutely. There's some astonishing shots of like civilians running away with the, you know, shell casings from mm -hmm. a from a Zaku falling down a la very reminiscent of the obviously famous moment in F91 where one hits the woman on the head because mm -hmm. it almost happens here. Um, and you have Garma just, he is, he's a, I don't know if Garma has any actual ideology, but he is full on with this because, hey, he's finally getting some glory. And it is a, it is a gross scene, but that is, that is where Garma has made his bed. Yeah, of where he is like, 
no longer thinking of the people he's fighting as people, right? It's he's in the like they are the enemy mode, um, and they're just like a an obstacle that must be tread over in order for him to get like the success he wants. Um, and like this is like the last of that, right? We have seen that happen with like all the kind of major characters on the Zeon side, bit by bit. Like we had that with Dozel in his like you know big like dramatic scene of him realizing the horror of what he's done and then the only way to survive it is to rationalize it and then not care and we see that echoed at the end of the fight um in this episode and now we see that exact same rationalization happening to garma um that he he wants glory he wants fame he wants to perform and like reflect well on his family and so he has kind of abandoned his like humanity in order to do that um and he doesn't seem to have noticed that that's even happened nope the final stretch of this episode mostly deals with the sort of politics and espionage around what will become the Antarctic speech, right? Yeah. The Zeon is, Zeon is exhausted speech. Um, so you have these dual scenes that are intercut with Degwin visiting Revel in the prison and Makuve in the museum where Kaecilia comes in. Both great scenes, but I need to point out right at the beginning, the funniest thing in all of the origin is this little bit of art design where on the prison... It's you. You have this establishing shot of the prison, and it says on the sign in big letters, you can't miss it. Principality of Zeon, the prison. It doesn't say like Principality of Zeon prison. It's Principality of Zeon, the prison, which immediately made me think of things like in the Spaceballs movie, where you have Spaceballs uh -huh. the T-shirt, Spaceballs the breakfast cereal, Spaceballs the flamethrower. The kids love that one, and I just love that idea. It's Principality of Zeon, the prison. Yes, yeah, and, and that is a that is a sh an establishing shot that only exists in the anime, um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it is <laughs> it is very funny the notion of like the, we've just got the one. It's just it's the prison. Uh, we, we only had the money to build a single prison for the entirety of the, the Republic of Zeon or the Principality of Zeon. Excuse me. Um, oh, it's yeah. so good. I love this scene with Degwin and Revel that we've had several moments throughout the series with Degwin and Revel where I think. They sort of get each other, or at the very least, Degwin believes Revel is a kindred spirit. That they're both men cut from the same cloth, from the same generation. They get it. And in this scene, you totally get that sense of, like, Degwin senses, Revel's going to be on my side. Revel's going to get all this. Revel just kind of stays quiet. And obviously, Revel is past all of this shit. Revel's not, yeah. like, Revel's not going to say anything bad to Degwin here because Degwin's going to let him go. But Revel is thinking about how much he wants probably wants to fucking kill this guy right yeah that that degwin and this is i think just such a good piece of characterization on degwin's part that he is like he's so naive here like his his belief that like there could be a peace treaty where again like let's, let's remind ourselves that the zeons um like a week before this wiped out half of the population of the planet earth it's like we're there you're so far past the point of where there's some sort of like a normal peace treaty and we could just sort of like sign this and pretend it never happened and go our separate ways. Um, like, cause one Giran wouldn't ever let that happen. Um, there's absolutely no way Giran would allow that to happen. And two, the people on earth wouldn't let that happen. Like even if the Admiralty of the Federation wanted it to, there's no way that that could fucking happen because the crimes of what's been committed here and the threat that Xeon represents is so immense but Degwin has no perspective on any of that shit. Like, he's totally lost sight of the scale of what has occurred here. Yeah. And so this entire, like, final... It's something I love. This entire final act of Gundam The Origin is started by Degwin wanting these peace talks and then 
everybody else, literally everybody, Kaecilia yeah. and Girin, but also all of the people on Earth like Gop and Makuve and Shar at one point, all of them have a vested interest in letting this war go on, whether for material reasons, whether for genuine ideological reasons like Revel um, and Girin in the in the opposite bad direction, or yeah. someone like Shar who's like, I don't want the war to end. I'm having a ball, right? Uh -huh. So all of them want it to continue and all of them take the opportunity Degwin in his naivety has given them and they run a hundred miles with it. And I think it is such a smart piece of, because it is basically like a, a sort of, espionage politics story those two kind of like subgenres that are kind of related put together for these last half hour and it's it's so it's so many delicious interesting scenes to me yeah absolutely it, because as you say this this sequence is intercut with Cassilia talking to Makave basically setting up of that Makave is the guy who's going to go to earth to negotiate the Antarctic treaty but she's telling him it's like but like that's just a pretense like really you are there to set up our earth invasion forces because Makave is the only person amongst like the Zeon uh forces that like actually admires or appreciates like the cultural and historical value of earth and also is you know he's the opposite of Girin it's like Makave understands and knows history so he's not going to like um be destroyed by you know losing sight of the lessons learned from that past um i think is is part of the idea there um and, and that you know i mean having immediately intercut of oh yeah we're going to have peace and i'm going to send you there to have peace and then cut to Caecilia, we're definitely not going to have peace this is just a pretense where you're we're sending you there so you're like the advanced stages of our eventual invasion of earth Yes, I mean, Makuve literally has these two questions he asks at the end of the sequence, one of which is, well, what do I do if there's no enemy to fight? And she says, and I think this is the first of two, like, thesis statements of the episodes. She says to him, regardless of the time or place, mankind has a fundamental desire for war. Whether that be foolish or wise, plans are already in motion to prolong the war. And then she also lets him know, because she says, I respect you, Girin, I find him detestable. A line that, of course, is a, is a lift from the original series. Um, and is delicious yeah. here. I, yeah, I love is it's like Watashiwa Giren Sotsuyo Skane. So she says it in this very like high-minded way of of yes. you know the word ski, um, which is to like, but skane, which is this like very fancy way of turn making it negative. And yeah, uh, which I, is why like, they like, use the big word detestable in English. It's a good translation. Yeah. Yes. Um. And yeah. And and I like in the manga in particular, she says that line like four or five times. So she she says that to quite a few people. Um, <laughs> yes. And I I like it every single time. It's like it's you know it's it's her way of sort of like she says it to anybody that she brings into her confidence to like let them know like we're going to the top basically like wink wink nudge nudge like at the end of this we're the ones who will be in control not Giren. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. good. Makuve, I fucking love this scene. It's very uh -huh. good. It's primo Makuve stuff. In general, I guess we'll talk about this next week, Sean, when we talk about the manga. Makuve has a, is very true to his character from the anime, but has a very different narrative role in the manga, mainly because of how they've reoriented the Odessa yeah. Day stuff. And I don't know about you, Sean, I love the Makuve stuff in the manga. I don't necessarily prefer it to the anime, but I do like it a lot, and I think there's some really good moments. And in general, his characterization is just so on point, and I think it extends to this scene, it extends to the voice work. I love that he is just hanging out in a museum, looking at art, going, that's fake, 
that's fake. Yes. I love the idea of there being a museum in the Universal Century where a bunch of like knickknacks and trinkets, like stuff that was sold at like gift shops in our day and age, becomes like they'd start to believe its actual history. My favorite moment being the curator is pointing at like basically a Japanese kabuki mask or a no uh -huh. theater mask and being, being like, this is Roman. And Makuve just goes, hmm. And you know what he's actually thinking because he probably knows what he's talking about. Um, that whole scene is great. Yeah, because because you know I'll say like one thing with Makave because I do like the a lot of the stuff they do in the manga with him, but I always you know I feel bad for him that in in both the movies and in the manga his best shit got cut because he's not at the duel of Texas and they they yeah. like the, the movie version they they have him die at the end of the Battle of Edessa, which like in many ways makes sense, but it's like the entire reason the Gyan exists is to have a cool duel with the Gundam, <laughs> and it's just like it's always frustrating that one of the best things in Mobile Suit Gundam just never ends up getting adapted um so it's like i feel bad for him in that respect but yes um th this scene is very very juicy juicy and i think one of the things i really love um he sort of the uh, like philosophy he espouses that is very like i think it encapsulates makave as a character as he's always been going back to the original anime is him saying you know that the universal century's history b extends not even a full 100 years and that is why people mock us um like like basically you know people living in space that they don't have like actual history um and so he like part of his goal in going to earth is to like accumulate that history into like incorporate it into their own right and it's yeah. this like interesting kind of like cultural perspective that we don't get much of uh, because it's such a war-focused series and, and the characters are all predominantly soldiers or people who've been conscripted as soldiers, there aren't a lot of people that we encounter in Gundam that are, like, concerned with culture as a thing. Um, and I like that Makave is, a, is the character who, like, he thinks about and is concerned with culture, but it's also in this very, like, consumptive, predatory way that he, like, uses it as, like, a weapon of, like, status um, and, and wants to, like, possess it. Um, so it's like he's the character who's interested in culture, but it's in this very like kind of gross, um, possessive way that that you know is why he's fairly like a slimy character. Yeah, and I will say I think the the thing that works for me about how the manga does it, and maybe this is more a conversation for next week, but the thing that works for me is that they I think Yasuhiko understands the character so well and puts such a good fine point on all of that that it's it would feel even weirder if he were still just hanging out with Zion by the point of the duel in Texas. And so I think he mm -hmm. squares the circle well within the specific version of the story being told in the manga where he still gets the Gyan in there in a phenomenal little moment. Um, and you all know how much I love the Gyan. So I am, I'm always there for more, more Gyan. I think it, it's, a, it's a, obviously a better use of the character than like the movies do, which both mostly just cut him. Other yeah. than I think they do keep the vase line in there somewhere. Um, yes. But yeah, it's, uh, it's good stuff. We'll talk about that more next week. We have our scene with Shar and Dozel, where Dozel officially recruits Shar under his wing, which is where he is at the beginning of First Gundam. He's working for Dozel, um, and he is given his orders for Operation V. You have some primo Shuichi Keita lines here, like him saying, Earth doesn't agree with me. I'm a space noid through and through. His whole like way he's kind of buttering up Dozel. It's very good. Um, I love the little robot they have on the table that prints out the orders. Shar yes. reads uh -huh. them and then gives it back to the robot who shreds it. That's such a great little fucking touch. This is what I mean. There's so much like fun, like 
space espionage stuff here. Um, and this is where you get the full prequelization of Shara's novel, where he is given his ship, the Falmer, a Musai that surpasses all other Musais, according to Dozel. He's given free reign on this mission, do whatever it takes to find and destroy Operation V. He gets Lieutenant Dren. He gets his whole ship and crew and Slender and everyone else, and he is off. And there's some really, really good stuff here. Yeah, I, I like this stuff. I do also think it ends up slowing down the pacing of the episode a bit too much for me, though. It's like a bit too, it's a little bit too on the nose prequely, you know, of of like, we got to get every little like, fit every little like piece back into its puzzle of like, this is where he gets his moose high. This is where he gets Dren. This is where he has the conversation where he makes Dren acting captain. And all of this stuff that's like, it's it's like, I guess it's fun to see, but it also just doesn't feel like it like, reflects much about the larger story being told specifically in this episode of the OVA to me. Maybe not, but on the other hand, in his speech to the crew, Shar has this line, I am a warrior of the cosmos, a knight who races at will across the heavens faster than any ship. And um, this whole scene could be garbage. And if Shuichi Ikeda just got to say that line, it would still be worth it. So that is my counterpoint to you. Yeah, I mean, he does. He does say Amakakeru Senshida, which is like, yes, the the like the warrior who who rides across like the heavens, basically, um, which is a very good line. Like, yeah, it's but it's like it's the thing that it like it's a little. I think that's kind of what I mean by and and I will say like I also don't particularly love these scenes in the manga either. I just think it's like a little bit too on the nose prequel. It's like it's because it's not telling a story. By putting these pieces in their puzzle, it's just putting the pieces in the puzzle is kind of like what it feels like to me. Like we're, okay, now we're at the point where he has to get this, this, and that, and the other thing, and we have to see him get the Operation V orders. All things that are like only interesting because I like Gundam, right? It's not like interesting in and of itself, I guess is what I mean. No, and I do see what you mean, that it is not strictly related to the Revel plot, although Char will intersect with it in a little bit. Um but I, f I feel like it's important for the arc of this OVA, at least, to have at least place Char where he's going to be because everyone else is. You have this, you know, big closing montage where you kind of, you know, have everyone in place for the events. And I think it's, I don't know. And, and yeah, and some of it's just the fanboy in me that when Shuichi Keita says Dren Shui or Dren Kancho, I just, I love it. He's just, they picked all these names for characters that sound uniquely good coming out of Shuichi Keita's mm -hmm. mouth, like Doren and Salender. It's, you know, so I just love it. Um, it works for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I just would have liked a way to, for that to, like, more naturally fit into a story being told rather than it feeling sure. like it's, 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 it feels like fan service to me, I guess, is what it is. But it's very good fan service. Sure. Uh so Kaecilia, next we have basically the big operation, which I have to talk about this for a second. Kaecilia's operation to spring revel and put all this in motion. She calls it Operation Bluebird, which uh -huh. she says she has named because it's the first... Bluebird was the name of the first film made jointly by the U.S. and the USSR in the Cold War. So naturally I had to go research that, Sean. And that is true. That is a true history fact. I don't know if it's actually the first film made jointly by the U.S. and USSR. It is one of the only ones. I don't know if it was the absolute first. But it was a joint production of Len Film and 20th Century Fox, released in 1976, directed by George Cukor, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Jane Fonda, Ava Gardner, and Cicely Tyson. It's based on a 1908 Maurice Maeterlinck play. Um... And it was basically a producer did this program through a UK cultural exchange program to co-produce between the USSR and US. 
My favorite historical detail here is that the producer Edward Lewis initially hired Arthur Penn to direct, and the Soviets said that man is too liberal, and George Cukor was hired as a non-political compromise. I found that very funny. Yeah, that is interesting. Because one thing that's interesting is that also is an original line to the anime. That that scene, setting it up, isn't even in the manga. So, like, that is, like, an interesting little... Uh, because because that was one where because i'm i know that right now because i'm scrolling through the manga looking for the scene to look at it because i didn't realize because even though i just read this sequence like like weeks or like two weeks or so before i watched the episode um that scene fits so naturally in what happens that i didn't even realize that wasn't even in the manga um yeah yeah it's it's a very good little beat to like just i think it like it's nice because it very like clearly establishes the nature of what is happening with Revel. Um, just like like you know, in case someone is a little bit confused about what's happening, which is that it is Zeon people disguised as Federation people, breaking him out of the prison to then take him to an actual Federation ship that is waiting like somewhere by the moon. Um, and so yes, it is this joint operation between like the two kind of like spy agencies on either side of the war in order to like get the war to continue yes uh and it actually does go much better than the actual bluebird i i don't know if kaecilia should have chosen that as an operation name because the movie did not go well they it was produced on location in moscow and leningrad and everybody got sick um elizabeth taylor dealt with amoebic dysentery throughout filming uh and later insisted they reshoot all her scenes in post in london um there's like all this there's it was like a disaster for production it was a total flop critics didn't like it um you know Caecilia's operation goes much better than the actual movie yeah it would have been great if like if it went sideways because one of the soldiers had dysentery and it's just like (laughs) oh god i know this is just awful timing i wish i had realized before i was deployed on the mission but it's like i really you know i've got a bad situation going on here so sorry we got it can we can we do this again like maybe we can retry this when you're in like our London prison over here, because uh, it's just I just not today. My favorite detail about this movie, Sean, this nothing about Gundam, but my favorite little detail is the producer convinced the USSR's production company Lenfilm to do the movie by promising that they would cast Marlon Brando as the main character. They didn't. Marlon Brando wasn't in it, but he promised that. And this would have been 76. This is when everyone's trying to get Brando. Like, Superman the movie is going to pay him yeah. however Th- many This millions. is when, also, you're not going to fucking get Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando to do this. No. Yeah, no. there's no way. So, that's my favorite little detail. A lot of lying going on. Anyway, you have this whole sequence where Revel gets sprung from prison. And then you have this scene that I'm surprised you didn't like, Sean. we got to talk about it. Where Char uh, finds Revel in space. I really love this little scene. I think it's a delicious little moment, but uh, we can... I I think for me, it's just a little bit too much. It's like, it's a bit extra. I think it's it's a thing of where, you know, there has been this thing in the origin prequel stuff of like putting Char like very close to like the things that are causing the one year war to happen and i think it's like it's on this line of that being like is it a little bit too much and a little bit too much to like make him responsible for this that or the other thing and generally i've been i've been fine with it this is one place where and i think it's like it's like how much the sequence plays out um like it's so much happens it would be one thing if it was like char notices it happening on his ship and he doesn't do anything and lets it go and has his line about like oh i almost stepped on like the most impressive piece of political theater of the 20th century or whatever um or of this century um but like the whole and he 
like they disable the ship and he boards it and he gets on and the one guy tries to pull the gun and char like it's cool it's very cool but it's so much for this that it's like i just it was a thing that honestly when i read the manga because i remembered the scene and i remember feeling this way about this the first time watching the origin that i was really surprised that it is there in like and all of those elements are there in the manga because it always felt like a thing that was added for the ova in order to make Char more central because he kind of doesn't have anything to do outside of the first 20 minutes of this episode. So I always assumed it was added in to give him a thing to do in the last episode of The Origin. Um, and and it, I just, like, there's something about it that it is, like, a little bit too over the top for me and draws too much focus away from what I think is more, like, the core of what is happening here with the espionage and revel and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I could I could not disagree more. I love this scene. I love the overall pace of it. I love the slow build of they're in the debris field behind the moon doing firing tests. They realize it's a real, like, moving Solomus. They're very confused. Why is this thing out here in the middle of space? They uh, they stop the ship. They they fire on it. There's all this stuff. They, they board it. You have a lot of just good back and forth between Char and Dren. Char goes out in his Zaku. You get this phenomenal shot, this extreme low angle of his Zaku stepping down on the ship with the sun behind him. Um, and he's interrogating them. He's like, you know, in full Shara's novel mode, why have you snuck into the very heart of Zeon? I think that scene where he, the guy tries to shoot him and he shoots back, I just, I love. Is it extra? Yeah, but so is Shara's novel. It's basically like the, there's this scene in Deadwood where a guy tries to pull a gun on Wild Bill Hickok when Hickok is set in the right place with his back to the wall uh -huh. and he pulls so fast that, you know, the guy can't even see him and kills him. And it's basically the exact same thing here with Char only with his like stupid sword gun thing he has on his hip that he never actually really uses in the anime, but looks yeah. cool. Um, so I love all of that. And then I, I, what I love is there's this build and build and build and then Revel enters and Char is astonished for a second. He gets it. He goes, sorry about that. And leaves basically. Um, there's this great like back and forth between him and Revel where Revel says, yes, I am Revel. What will you do with that knowledge? Zeon officer who is faithful to his duty. And they're like talking past each other, but they both know what they're talking about. Char leaves. And I think what makes the scene for me is the punchline when he says, that was a treasure ship that was far too rich for my blood. We came very close to ruining a brilliant bit of political theater. And I think that him intersecting with that and letting it go on Two things. I just think it's a great production of a sequence. I love the overall, you know, wartime espionage flavor of it with that build, build, and then the release when Revel gets in and Char, being Char, realizes what's going on. I also think it is thematically important that in the overall thematic tapestry of the episode where you have all these characters affirmatively choosing to let the war go on and not take the off-ramp, that Char, being one of our main characters in the OVA, is one of those who sees this moment and of course he is like kind of overjoyed to see this bit of political theater going on that he can step back and let go on uninhibited and then there's a scene that I believe that is added only in the anime and it's not in the manga where he tells everyone on the ship to be watching Revel's speech and he's kind of reveling in it um, I think it works very well in the overall arc of the episode and I just think it's a great scene on its own I think for me my problem with it is like it's just the whole it feels a bit contrived or something like it's so it's such an incredible coincidence that his ship just happens to be in the sector where the ship waiting for revel is like it, there's just something about that that feels like there's because I, I agree that thematically it's important which is why i'm saying like i would be fine with it if it like 
was constructed in such a way that it felt more believable that this would have could have happened because it just makes Char so important. It's like that, like he's so completely dominates this moment and it, he so eats it and owns it out of like in a way that feels like it's just given to him. And it's like, it just feels like the story is contorted in such a way, like to the benefit of Char as a character that makes it also feel a bit like fan servicey to me that it, it like just, it just like, it's not a, to me a believable sequence of events. It kind of breaks, I think a little bit like the grounded political, like military realism of like a lot of the way that these sequences are constructed and i wish that they delivered some of like the thematic stuff in a way that felt more natural to me than just we're out here in the middle of nowhere doing a random training exercise we just happen to stumble on this ship right when it's picking up revel and are able to, to completely take control of the scenario um and then let it go on its like merry way i think that it's like that's what i mean by it's like a bit extra or it's a bit too much to me yeah, that's just not a this is not a problem I ever really even thought about with it. It it was fine for me. Yeah, um, because I don't know, like if there's a little extra coincidence and stuff in there, like I don't, I think Char's a character you can get away with that on. Is is for me is like he is a bit extra as a character. Things happen around him and to him and with him. I can and just I it is also like this is a six episode production where he is ostensibly your lead character. I think it makes sense for him to be a key figure in this final act. Like, yeah, I guess I, I think that, like, it just feels like there are opportunities to have created a moment like this, like, closer to the escape itself or something like that, where it would make sense that Char would intersect with this plot, rather than these two things happening completely disconnected from one another, and then they happen to intersect. It just feels like it's very rough plotting to me. Hmm. Can we at least agree Shuichi Keda is a fucking god yes. with every yes. single line yeah. delivery? <laughs> yeah, like like the fan servicey elements of it of like just sharging fucking cool as shit. Like, yes, it absolutely nails all that stuff completely. It's good. It's, you know, it's extra, extra shy. At this point, it's Char, you know, fucking hours before the TV series starts. And I just love all of that. All right. Finally, Sean, we're going to have the entire Antarctic Treaty sequence, the final montage, the close to this thing. And so there was something I wanted to share with the listeners, and I think we might as well do it here, Sean, uh -huh. um, which is that the whole Antarctic Treaty speech and a lot of what is in these two episodes, episodes five and six, and, and obviously what they're adapted from in the origin, a lot of that is pulled fairly directly from the original Gundam novelization by Yoshiyuki Tomino. We've talked about these on the podcast before. Uh, after the anime ended, Tomino wrote three novels, Awakening, Escalation, and Confrontation, that really, it would be wrong to say they retell the story of First Gundam. They sort of like take some of the elements, but it's mainly a different story mm -hmm. with some of the same aspects there. But what it does do, and I've said this before, is it's kind of like a lore Bible for Gundam. Like so much of what is in the origin, but in a lot of other Gundam properties as well, especially in Universal Century stuff, comes out of what Tomino lays down in this book. Sometimes the details are slightly different, but a lot of it comes out of here, including this entire episode with the Antarctic Treaty. Um, even actually someone reminded me of this. I said, we've said a couple weeks ago that Sasro, the missing 
uh, Zombie Boy is from uh, the just from the an invention of the manga. He's not. He is in the the book mentioned. Hmm. Um, so that is that is another thing that Yasuhiko pulled from the novel. So I just wanted to read a couple of pages here, Sean, and I will read just the main text, and then eventually we're going to get Revel's speech, and I thought you could read that for us. Um, so this is a couple of pages. We'll become an audiobook for a minute here, but I think it's super interesting. And if you've never read the book, maybe this will be fun to hear as we're talking about these episodes of the origin that are essentially dramatizing this history. So there you go. So this is on page 95 of the English translation that is out now by Frederick L. Schote. Let's begin. Warfare between the Principality of Xi'an and the Earth Federation had first erupted in January UC 0079 when, three seconds after issuing a formal declaration of war, Xi'an threw its entire military might into an attack on sides 1, 2, 4, and 5. Each side was composed of about 40 colonies, which collectively held up to a billion people. So in one audacious move, the Xeon fleets nearly accomplished the unthinkable, slaughtering 4 billion people, annihilating the entire Federation forces, and forcing the Earth government to capitulate. Survivors later sarcastically referred to having a three-second warning. Obviously, that is toned down for future stories of Gundam. That's yeah. quite a bit of killing. Um, the tactic used to destroy the colonies was horrifyingly simple. The colony cylinders had a sealed atmosphere. So the Xeon military simply injected GG gas into them. Poisonous, colorless, and odorless, it took only 15 minutes to inject 10 tons of the gas and in five hours kill nearly 25 million people. Had Xeon forces managed to continue at this rate for 20 hours and then immediately demanded the unconditional surrender of the Earth Federation, they probably would have triumphed. But two factors worked against them. First, General Revel put up a courageous struggle around Side 5, known as Loom, and successfully held off the Xeon forces there. Second, immediately after the first gas attacks, the Federation government on Earth began to put up a fierce resistance of its own. It wasn't merely because nearly 4 billion of its fellow citizens in outer space were being killed. Human psychology reacts to a more directly perceived danger. It was because Xeon also implemented its diabolical colony crash strategy, which consisted of maneuvering the dead colony cylinders into Earth orbit and then decelerating them until they plummeted towards targets on the ground. When the first colony fell on New York, the horrified people of Earth were driven to take action. Taking advantage of the fact that the Xeon forces required considerable time, energy, and large numbers of Zakus to prepare for such a massive undertaking, the Earth Federation forces regrouped and counterattacked. Unfortunately for Xeon, large numbers of Zakus were destroyed. For once, both Girinzabi and his sister Kaecilia were in fundamental agreement on the correctness of the colony crash strategy. They believed that true victory in war could not be achieved by slaughtering innocent millions with gas attacks. Rather, because they saw war primarily as a psychological process, their plan was to crash colonies into Earth's major cities until the arrogant ruling Federation elites trembled in fear. And to a certain extent, they, initially ach they achieved their initial objective. A month after the one-week battle, as this first stage of the conflict came to be known, Xeon launched another attack. But General Revel had consolidated the surviving Federation ships and was again able to effectively resist. As the opposing fleets clashed in a fierce struggle between the Earth and the Moon around Side 5, the Xeon forces were disadvantaged in terms of the absolute number of ships, but they put their new mobile suits, the Zakus, to superb use and managed to annihilate most of the Federation ships. Revel's flagship was destroyed by a special team of Zakus called the Black Tri-Stars, and Revel himself was taken prisoner. It was in this same Battle of Loom that Shara's novel first distinguished himself as a Zaku pilot. 
Xeon's supreme commander, Giran Zabi, then issued an ultimatum to the Earth Federation government, threatening to crash Luna 2 into their headquarters at Jaburo unless they surrendered unconditionally. Jaburo was the central command post of the Earth forces, located deep underground in South America, and if it were destroyed, the planet clearly would have to capitulate. Shuddering in fear, high-level Federation officials began negotiating with Xeon representatives, including Supreme Commander Girin and Rear Admiral Kaecilia, at a site in Antarctica. While most felt unconditional surrender was unavoidable, they asked Girin for ten days to debate the issue among themselves. Without waiting for their decision, Girin returned to Xeon, entrusting the rest of the negotiations to Kaecilia with the advice, The Earth Federation leadership is spineless. Be sure to take advantage of that. Three days later, the day before the surrender treaty was to be formally signed, General Revel managed to escape and return alive to Earth, and from Jaburo he broadcast his speech, Zeon is exhausted. Fellow Earth Federation citizens, fellow survivors, I appeal to you all, Zeon is exhausted. It is low on troops, low on ships, weapons, and even ammunition. Why then, I ask you, should we surrender? Dear fellow citizens, our true enemy is no longer Zeon, but our own weak-kneed civilian leaders. Hiding behind some notion of absolute democracy, they are reduced to absolute indecision. Why should we, the survivors of this horrible war, entrust them with the power to make decisions for us? How can we forget the arrogance of Degwin Sotozabi when he usurped power in Zeon? He claimed that the people of Zeon are a chosen people that we of the Earth Federation are hidebound by archaic ways of thinking and incapable of realizing the new potential for an expanded human consciousness in outer space. That there is no need for the people of Xeon to obey an Earth Federation run by outmoded human relics. Well, fellow citizens, even though I am a member of our armed forces, I have to admit that if Degwin was referring to our corrupt Earth Federation bureaucrats, he was correct. But fellow citizens, we must not be deceived by Degwin Zabi simply because part of what he says is true. Zeon may be the side farthest away from Earth, that is no reason to believe its leaders prattle about communing with the universe. Degwin Zabi must not be allowed to justify his version of Zeon because of corruption in one part of our Federation. His words are dogma, the dogma of a man plotting a dynasty of Zabi dictators on Zeon. Even if we do the unthinkable and recognize the existence of the Zeon dictatorship, that in no sense means we must also sink to our knees before it. The Earth Federation is a government founded on the premise of sovereign individual rights. Mankind, furthermore, was able to advance into outer space as a result of the Federation government, which is itself a crystallization of all mankind's accumulated knowledge and experience. Now, Degwin's son, Giran Zabi, says it is the weak and inept Earth Federation itself that must be destroyed. Well, let him go ahead and try. Strike at the heart of our weakness. But what right does he, who has slaughtered four billion innocent people, have to strike such a righteous pose? Giran Zabi tells us that mankind has violated the laws of nature by reproducing more than any other species. He tells us that mankind's population growth must be managed because mankind must learn to inhabit the universe in harmony with nature. He tells us that the death of four billion people was merely expiation for our past sins against nature. Is Giran mad? What does he possibly think the human race and entire species could gain by exterminating itself? There is nothing to gain. No. Giran is a despot, trying to exterminate the very source of life that has supported and nurtured him. We of the Federation shall never comprehend the monstrosity of his actions. And now Giran threatens to crash Luna 2 onto Earth unless we surrender to him. 
What basis does he have for his demands? Is he in possession of some sort of absolute truth? No. He possesses nothing more than his own demented dogma. Is the entire Federation completely enfeebled, corrupt, and degenerate? Again, the answer is no. Many good, capable citizens have fought bravely against the threat from Zeon, and we are still strong and alive. So then, does Zeon actually possess an overwhelming military superiority over the Federation? Again, the answer is no. Fellow citizens, listen to what I say. Giran's threats are mere bluff. Unworthy as I am of my good fortune, I was captured rather than killed by Zeon forces and thus was afforded the opportunity to see the, the Zeon nation firsthand. I therefore can assure you that the people of Zeon are exhausted and there is no way they can possibly strengthen their forces enough to carry out their threats. So I say to you, Giran Zabi, if you think you can send Luna 2 crashing to Earth, well then, go ahead and try. When General Revel said this on television, it was almost as if he were staring Giran Zabi straight in the eye. Zeon's strength was expended in the Battle of Loom. There is no way they can cre create new soldiers overnight, and Giran Zabi knows it. I therefore appeal to all the citizens of the Earth Federation, to each and every one of you. Zeon is exhausted. Now is not the time for us to kneel before Zeon. It is time for us to rise. Now, more than ever, is our chance to defeat Zeon. After hearing General Revel's speech, Rear Admiral Kaecilia was said to have been so enraged that she tried to smash the negotiating table. An explosive shift in public opinion occurred throughout the Earth Federation, with the result that the Antarctic negotiations concluded not in surrender, but in a treaty that merely banned the use of chemical and nuclear weapons and attacks on the transport ships both sides used to ferry critical resources, particularly helium from Jupiter. After his speech, not everything went well for General Revel. Rumors swirled of a possible demotion by the Earth Federation government, but he had already become a global hero, and there was little they could do. An opportunity was thus lost. The inability of the Federation government to come up with any bold initiatives, combined with the uncompromising stance of Zeon, led to the continuation of the war, and it quickly slid into a protracted stalemate. It was almost as if too many people had already died in the conflict, almost as if, out of resentment, their souls had enveloped the world and tried to ensnare the remaining survivors. This is a really good book, Sean. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, one, I love that Tomino is such a fucking nerd he wrote the entire speech. Like, yes. it is not an excerpt of the speech, it is the entire fucking speech. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, and it's very good. Like, it's very, like, it... It's it's very like Roman in its following of like rules of rhetoric with like the repetition of examples of three on um, the ways yes. of like using humility and stuff like that. It reminds me a lot of Mark Antony's speech in Julius Caesar and stuff like that. Oh, it's so good. And then all of those other details that are so like there, obviously there's some stuff that's different, like all of the extra gassing of the colonies, the fact that they drop multiple colonies in that version, the whole detail about Luna 2. But then there's all these little things that Yoshi, uh, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko like lifts directly, like the Black mm -hmm. Tristars destroying the Ananke, the, the command ship, you know, directly and stuff like that. Like that is where you'll get the detail that this is where Shar became the Red Comet, all of this kind of stuff. Um, it's very cool. So, so much of like these episodes we've been watching, the, the origin of them is kind of in those pages of the novel. And of course, that speech is not delivered word for word here or anything, but many pieces of it are there. And this is the center point around which this final sequence is constructed. And I have to say, Sean, I think just in terms of like 
virtuoso production of a sequence. This is one of the best things in Gundam The Origin is this mm-hmm. final montage of Revel giving the speech. We cut to every character in the in the canon at this point watching it. You get the big piece of music that's called Future Warriors that I really, really like, where you get this big montage of everyone who's going to be part of the white base crew all get a little title card and everything. It's really cool. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And and it is it's like because the whole scene just like I think encapsulates um like the the full dynamics of what is happening coming into the one year war. Um, in particular, like there's the two sides of it, right? There's Revel and Girin that I think are like legitimately on this like ideological fight, right? That like as you said, like Revel at this point, I think like fully understands that this is not a war that they can afford to lose or surrender. Um, because like what that means is so ghastly and horrific that the Earth Federation has to fight. Um, and, but then you also have all these people on the sides that um, are pushing the war forward because they profit from it. Um, and, and one of my favorite moments is you have uh, leading up to the speech on like you have some of the Earth Admiralty on an escalator coming down and they're talking about it and they know that Revel has escaped and that like, he's going to deliver this speech. So they know the war is going to continue. Um, and that's where they're talking about, well, at least we can like have it be, you know, a treaty that bans the use of chemical weapons and nuclear weapons and colony drops. And then the, one of the admirals just laughs and said, oh, so it's go ahead and have as much war as you like. You just have to be cleaner about it. And then he starts like, you know, cackling about it. Um, and it's very much, you know, I think it, it, it captures the dynamics of what's going on here, which is there are so many people who are going to profit by the war um while it wages you know misery and death on the general populations of both the colonies and the people on earth um and they just like are kind of rooting for it on the sidelines and then there are two people at the center of this game Guren and revel that are like playing for fucking reels yes they're playing for keeps so many other people don't realize it you have um the moment where the music actually kicks in is when you have Mirai's dad giving that speech that I quoted earlier where he talks about how humanity hasn't taken this far enough. Um, you know, regardless of what they say, people desire war. Uh, which is almost also like an interpolation of some of what's in Tomino's book there about like why this thing is continuing. It's not quite as poetic as Tomino's line about the souls around the, the body of the earth and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that with every character you cut to, you get the feeling they all know how important this moment is. From the obvious, like, Sela is cued into it, and that's how she shuts down those assholes on the ship she's with, of like, hey, this is one of the most important moments in history. Do you care to listen? Down to, like, Kai, who's hanging out by the lake with everyone, and he is sort of uncharacteristically listening to this speech on the radio, and even Kai listening to it is like, this seems important. I love all of those little details, you know? Yeah, because there is a they add in a little beat with Kai where he stops Amuro um, and like tries to get Amuro to tell him about what's going on with his dad being a soldier and all of that, which I think is a nice little bit of like giving Kai a little bit of characterization that, you know, leads into him being a member of the white base and one of the pilots on the white base of like there there is a more serious side to his character mm-hmm. that has always been there. Um, and, and I like that they kind of put that a little bit here in the origin that kind of presages his line there um to his kind of like the other goons in his like biker gang or whatever yes. the fuck they do when they're at their school with their leather jackets and shit i guess all those guys died on side seven because we never see them again yeah, presumably 
yeah i don't know if kai was actually that broken up about it it's i actually wanted to talk about that moment we, we kind of skipped over it but the moment with kai and amuro i think is really good because i one furukawa just goes to town on that yeah. line of like kai kind of berating amuro but then i really like toru furia's retort where he says like get out of the way or i'm gonna run you over basically he says get out of the way it's dangerous to stand in the street like that and i love that you have just like full proactive amuro which is a part mm-hmm. of amuro's character from the beginning you know he has a a lethargy but also a proactivity it's like two sides of him um you get this whole scene where he goes to the construction sector and tries to figure out what the gundam is and that leads to them taking everything out of the apartment which leads to this great moment where he's back in his dad's office but everything's empty and they repeat the tracking shot from when Mm -hmm. he first saw it but now everything's empty and i do kind of like the aspect of amuro living in a paranoid 70s thriller for this scene Uh yes yeah, it's 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 a it's a nice little way to kind of just like close off the little like Amuro subplot they've sprinkled yes. through here. Like I think it's better done here than it, it has been in some of the other episodes. Like in episode five, that sequence at the beginning felt very like superfluous, whereas here it it partially because it's intersecting with this is basically the beginning of the one year war as we understand it because Rebel speech is like earth federation is now committing to this war rather than being this sort of like passive participant that's only involved because they have interest in like basically governing the colonies because it gives them profit whereas like now they're like no we're going to actually fight a fucking war with you guys which is part of what that speech is um and so it that more like i think dramatically pulls amuro and the other characters into the action because we know where all this is going um and so it it feels more like immediate and like narratively impactful to have some of this stuff here yeah and you know i don't i don't ever need the prequelization with like amuro learning about the gundam there's other bits of the prequelization i think are really really good like Mm -hmm. particularly in the manga version just him all the stuff of him living his life on side seven is very cool to see right we've talked about that in previous episodes one the little grace note they give Amuro though I really do like where it's 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 his last moment in in this OVA where he is kind of distracted he looks back at the big bulkhead where behind that is the construction sector and he says on the far side of that that's where the Gundam is and he's kind of looking at it and there's this little with the music and everything there's this obvious like kind of call to the destiny of it there and again it's not a moment I like need and it doesn't fully align with like the original anime obviously but there's something about that that i just think is a nice little grace moment to like end it and yasuhiko has talked about in in some of the extra materials in the manga that one of the key entry point images for him and being interested in telling the story in manga form was expanding on that idea that side seven is this weird colony where it is really there for military tests and so half of it is closed off and it's said it's under construction, but it's a lie. And then you have this civilization going on on this other side and there's this division. And that's an image that really compelled him. And I think it's played with in very interesting ways in volume one. And then in some of the flashback stuff, particularly a lot of the Amuro stuff that doesn't quite make it into the anime. Um, and I like that call to that because it is just a compelling image of him looking at this big closed off side of the colony and thinking about the Gundam. It's it's over there and it's a good line from Toru Furia. Yeah, and, and it, it calls to a thing that I, I like that I think is very important about the dynamic of what Side 7 is. I think it's like easy to forget, which is you know that they're not supposed to be building anything there that it is like it is like against the rules of war effectively like the treaty like they're supposed to be a neutral colony um but they're so the the development of the gundam there is the thing that gets 
all those people fucking killed and like the the hundred or so survivors that end up on the white base um and like ruined their entire lives like none of that weapon development is supposed to be going on uh, is you know effectively illegal against the rules of like engagement for the war so it's, that's yeah. a, a thing i think the dynamic that they sort of like reintroduce here and make more like front and center is it how it ties into like the different factions that desire the war or profit by the war and some of that is like tim ray and the the operation v people and their whole project about designing this mobile suit is like motivated by we need this war to happen too because we want our gundam to do some shit right we need to we need to profit from our weapons development we're doing all this we're committing so much to this even if it is putting everyone else who lives here completely at risk if we're doing this here in secret yeah so i mean how well for you sean does this just overall sequence work as an ending because it's it's accurate to the manga the manga flashback mm -hmm. ends here as well but it ends on this quiet note of sayla watching it on the ship two side seven and that's where it ends and the shift the anime makes is to adapt it into this bigger more bombastic montage where you see all of the characters key to the white base they get their little cards that just fantastic music by hattori yeah. here um and it is this kind of big rousing finale. I've always remembered this scene vividly. I think it's such a good ending to the OVA. Yeah, I think it's it's very good. I mean, because it, it's it's the thing where I think finding like a good a way to end the OVA is a tricky thing because it's a thing that like inherently doesn't like have an ending because its ending is and now the TV show happens. Um, but I think this is the 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 construction of the sequence itself is so moving and so effective. Um, I think that's that's what pulls it off. Like if this it was the same thing, but it was executed to a much like lower degree, I think it would come across more as like ah, eh, it's just like fan servicey whatever. But it's edited together and and written in such a way to make it feel like there is a sweep of like thematic intent and narrative drama that connects all of these people together. That we have seen those threads being you know drawn together bit by bit over the course of the origin, showing what are all the things that bring this war to fruition um and and how then do char and sayla like factor into that um and of course like it it does ultimately have to need with addressing to some extent like the white base and those people in the gundam because that is where all this is eventually going to go yeah absolutely um it's at like at least 60% of the fucking music. The music uh -huh. is so good. Yeah. It's one of the best pieces. I think my favorite piece in the origin soundtrack is that Red Comet theme for Char. But I think my second favorite piece is this big, it's called Future Warriors. I know that because I've listened to it a million times. It's just a great piece of music that's like, it's the right kind of like rousing for, it's a pretty dark story overall. But to like, uh -huh. you know, this big, you know, classic Gundam story is about to unfurl. And I think it's very good. And I think the way this episode cuts to credits kicks so much ass. Oh, where yeah. you have, I mean, you have the muse, the Future Warriors piece wrap up with its big swell. As it finishes swelling, you cut to Revel, who has his final eyes, where he says lines where he says, "Zeon lacks for soldiers. We cannot but win." And then it's smash cut and dun 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 dun. Line dotted tears is a fucking great Gundam song. Yes, yeah. Masayoshi Yamazaki is just a great musical artist. Um, like he's like a very like popular, very well known musical artist in Japan. So I've listened to some of his other stuff because he's done other themes for shows and things like that. Um, and yeah, it's so good. I mean, I just love his music because it's got a very like kind of classic 
rock kind of influence to it that's very much in my wheelhouse but yes, this song it just kicks so much ass that core like guitar riff um that drives the whole song is so good it's so catchy and in particular that being then put over these images of like the pods dropping with zakus onto earth and like you know eventually you my favorite is garma standing in, in front of in hollywood a, yes um the hollywood <laughs> sign which is the best i think ad, like addition that the origin manga makes in taking these sort of like fake earth locations of the original series which has its own charm and i love that in its own way but making it explicitly he is in los angeles like by fucking hollywood is so hilarious and having that shot in the credits um while masayoshi yamazaki is like crooning the chorus to the song it's the fucking best shit <laughs> I, I agree with all of that. It's it's stuff. I mean, I've talked before about how much I love all of Yasuhiko's location work, but the whole idea of the Garma episode happening in Hollywood is something he uses. He makes such a meal out of that location. Yeah. And just having that one shot in the credits of Garma with his big goofy grin in front of the Hollywood sign is so funny. I mean, it's, yeah, it's so many things. It's the ending with Revel's big final proclamation. You know, we cannot but win. We must be victorious, however you want to translate that. Mm -hmm. Um... And then it, it's into the guitar lick, which is sick as shit. That song is, it's my favorite of the six Gundam Origin themes. Yes. I've listened to it yeah. a million times. 100%. Um, yeah, it's so good. And then you have, as the song goes along, this series of what I think are kind of alternately funny and haunting images. Funny being Garma in front of the Hollywood sign. Yeah. Haunting being that amazing shot of an entire city's electrical grid going yeah. out. It's really, it kind of goes back and forth. And I think this song, there's something about it that I think kind of like is thematically in keeping, even if you're not looking at the lyrics, I just mean like the music of it is thematically mm -hmm. in keeping with the episode of like, well, we're going to have a fucking war and let's have a fucking war, right? And we yeah. see the beginning of it on Earth. Um, also, the song makes copious use of harmonica. And that mm -hmm. is one reason I fucking love it. The harmonica slaps, more harmonica in songs. Harmonica is a key part of rock and roll. Yeah, because I think one thing like stylistically here is that we've we've moved a little bit out of like the World War II stuff. And this is very much like a Vietnam movie kind of like thing that it's doing of the like contrast of the horror of this war with this like much more like upbeat, like kind of like energetic music um, that, yeah, I think is like I'm so I'm way into because it, it, it totally dovetails with the thematic statement of that, you know, the reason why this war is happening or one of the main reasons why the war is happening is because people can't help but have war because we profit by it and so on and so forth which like the cold war is like the poster child of that dynamic um and the episode has made multiple references to the cold war with the blue bird stuff um that then bringing in this like vietnam movie style musical montage over the credits with this sick guitar song um yeah it it is it's fucking great it is, it's something that like it makes me want more Gundam stuff that does stuff like this because it's a little bit obviously we have like the OH MS team has a lot of Vietnam influences but you know it's 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 like just such like an interesting compelling kind of wartime aesthetic um that I like its inclusion here oh I love it and just overall I mean this is such a kick-ass ending from the montage with future warriors to Revel's last lines to the song kicking in to all of the as you say the kind of Vietnam imagery over the credits I don't know how you don't walk out of this just unbelievably jazzed. And then you also get that post credit yeah. scene, which is phenomenal. Where you have the white bass rising with, at this point, just pure original Gundam 79 music. Not the original recording, but just like a very straight adaptation of it yeah. here. 
You have Bright. I love having Bright on the bridge here where he's just a plucky young upstart mm-hmm. before he has the weight of the world put on his shoulders, which we've never really seen because Bright, by the time we meet him in Gundam 79, people are dying left and right, right? You know? Um, basically, the only scene he has where he doesn't have that pressure on him is when he gets Tem Ray out of his room, which is this scene sets up that he's like, I'll go get you when we land. Uh, and I also do like the captain calling him Bright Coon because uh-huh. you never, ever hear anyone say Bright Coon in this series. Yeah, just getting <laughs> to see that captain again is like, oh, oh the original white base captain, you're such a good dude. And it's like, yeah. it's like one of those guys that's just like, you hate to see go because he's like one of the few Earth Federation people that is just like a legitimately good guy. Yes. No, I love him. I like the last scene of Tem Ray in his cabin. He's excited about the Gundam. There's a little bit of sentiment in that, you know, maybe he really does believe he can end the war with this. And then there's this photo of Amuro on his desk. That photo is there in First Gundam as well. But in this version, it is a Yasuhiko drawing basically yeah. lifted out of the manga. Yeah, it basically uh, then, looks like he, like, has, he, like, framed one of the covers for the manga. It just, yes. like, put it there. It's, it's very funny. I like it. It's great. You fade out. On screen, there is text that says, and now, Gundam begins. And then, just to make yes. this a perfect series, Akio Otsuka says, will you be able to survive? And it's the best reading of that line in the history of Gundam. Because it's yes. Akio fucking Otsuka. This is, the, honestly, of, like, all things in Gundam The Origin, there are two things that have, st- of, like, this anime adaptation, there are two things that have stuck with me forever. And it is, you know, it is Shara's whole thing of, like, kneel before me, God. That's one thing that I think about all the fucking time. And, like, the whole sequence building up to that with the cockpit shaking to pieces and all that. And the other is Akio Otsuka, like, whispering into the microphone, Kimi wa ikinobirukoto wa dekiruka. And just, like, I remember just my spine tingling. Um, like, quite <laughs> literally. Not as an expression, like, actually my spine vibrated. It's just like, yes. oh my god. Because it hit, like, a chord deep inside of me that, like, Honestly, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, is one of the things that I think, like, causes a chain reaction to this podcast starting. Because it is that fucking line delivery that, like, I had not forgot, I had not thought about by the time I had watched this in two or three years. About the fact that the end, at the end of every single episode of Mobile Suit Gundam, the narrator says, will you be able to survive? That was just a thing that had gone from my memory. And he says it. And, like, I was hit by this overwhelming wave of nostalgia when I heard that. That that is what caused me to re-watch Mobile Suit Gundam. That then me re-watching original Mobile Suit Gundam is one of the things that got me talking about Mobile Suit Gundam to you all the fucking time. That then eventually was like, oh, we should just do a podcast on it. Um, and is like, then when I re-watched Mobile Suit Gundam twice within like six months or whatever. Um, so it is like, this is like getting really close to when we started the podcast by the time that this uh, thing has come out. So the silky smooth, perfect vibrations of Akio Otsuka's God voice yes. is the direct trigger for the creation of Weekly Suit Gundam, which means Akio Otsuka is our origin. Basically, yes. Yeah, it is like it's that <laughs> because, because that line delivery is so good. Like I just he like understands so clearly like the weight of what this line is and what it means. And it's just such a fucking sumptuous delivery there's so much packed into it um that yeah it is like it it was that and that feeling of like holy shit i have to just go watch immediately you know gundam daichi nitats and it's like i just gotta go there right now um and that's basically what i did and then eventually we did this podcast 
I did it last night too. I finished uh-huh. this and I watched the first two episodes of First Gundam because there was just some one. I just I don't know how you watch Gundam: The Origin and get to the end of episode six and don't go watch Gundam Rising, like uh-huh. the first episode of Gundam. It is so hard to not do that because last time I watched Gundam Origin, you know what I did when we finished this? We watched the movie trilogy, right. and that's yeah. where that came from. So, like, it is so hard for me not to go watch OG Gundam after this OVA, which I think says a lot about how good this OVA is and that it's, like, fan service done right, goddammit. But, like, yeah, yeah I just... And, and one, First Gundam is such a ludicrously good show that just, like, oh, my God. I just... Even even in my memory, I've said it a million times, it's my favorite show ever. I still sit down and watch it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so good. But, yeah, like, the best possible argument that I think could be made for doing a remake of First Gundam is having Akio Otsuka as the narrator. So for however many episodes you yes. can say this line at the end, that is maybe the best reason to do it. Because, you know, yeah. we already have Shuichi Keita and Toru Furia and everyone else doing their their all their great work in original Gundam. We don't need them to do it again because they've done it. But we don't have Akio Otsuka as the narrator. <laughs> yeah, but we have I this one line here. a different line read for every single episode. Yes. You don't just do one and then reuse it. He's got to give a fresh take and everyone is a little bit different. Yes. <laughs> Get him in that booth and say, all right, Otsuka-san, we need you to read it 50 times. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Sean, this series is so fucking good. Yes. Yeah. No, it is. It is just... It, it's it's Gundam candy. It's just like... It's so... You know, in, in my first Gundam loving heart, like it is just so much fun and it's so interesting. And, and its ability to, I think, both capture... Um, and explore and you know build on the politics and ideas and themes of original Gundam um, and then also have some of this like just complete you know fan servicey you know have have the narrator say will you be able to survive at the end of the episode and some of that kind of stuff um, it's it is a true feast for Gundam fans uh, when they made this it's it's so true i mean we've obviously had little quibbles along the way because we talked about every single fucking scene of this six episode series yeah because most of i think i really is when you think back to it other than a couple of stuff in episode four with um lala soon is probably like the, the biggest like complaint or criticism i have for it i feel like most of the criticisms of like like all the stuff i talked about in this episode that are criticisms i don't think would be something notable enough that i would have mentioned it if we did the we're talking about all of them in one like three to four hour podcast version of this conversation. Like most of the criticisms I have don't really rate on that level. No, I think if we were doing the one three hour podcast, it would be almost annoyingly effusive because there Uh are, and it's the reason why we had to break it out into six is that every one of these six episodes has so many scenes that are just either such a great production or such a great piece of story that Yasuhiko came up with or such a great opportunity for Shuichi Ikeda or Toru Furia or one of the new actors to like go to town with something or is such a great invention of the OVA like the big song number in episode 5 mm-hmm. that you have it's and sometimes it's all of those together and it really is one of Gundam's finest hours it's you know not my it's not in the absolute uppermost you know tier with like Turn A and Gundam 79 but it is so much higher than a prequel to Gundam should be. Like, yeah, I it's mean, crazy. It's, it's the kind of thing where, like, in the, it's going to be weird trying to rank it because it is like it's one of those things where its proximity to First Gundam and like, and it's also its reliance on First Gundam makes it like a thing that's weird to try to rate it in and of itself because it's so closely attached to this other thing. 
But yes, it is, it's something that I think could very easily, like just the entire, like if you take a step back from it, like look at the Origin Project as a whole, it's a thing that's so easy to imagine going wrong, right? The idea of, have, of doing like a, re, for the manga, doing a retelling of the original anime stuff, um, making some changes and then telling this big prequel story. You know, most prequels are so like either actively destructive or just incredibly boring. Um, and the fact that this is never either of those things and at most it's like you have like a couple of like quibbles or like you know because usually it's stuff that I'm like I kind of I like the way the anime implies the way this went but I also like the way that this went and so it's like more kind of like a conflict of two different versions of the thing and I like both of them a lot like the level of incredible high quality that this is in and of itself and then the way in which it builds and reflects on things from First Gundam um, is so much better than you would ever expect a project like this to be. And then on top of all that, it is also, you know, for me having read the manga, I think one thing that's really interesting is looking at the OVA through the lens of like, how does it relate to the manga that it's adapted from, which I didn't have that experience the first time I watched it, is getting to see like how many incredibly smart choices were made in the production of this anime adaptation and that it is this thing where sometimes it creates a little bit of like friction points where it, it, it can be a little bit awkward in the way it's sandwiched between two things but i mean any piece of like weird friction or awkwardness is always more than compensated by some choices that they make originally for the anime version of being both an adaptation of this material and spe more specifically a prequel to the original gundam series that it gets to kind of like flower as its own creation that it's not just an adaptation to the manga um it's not just a straightforward prequel it gets the this anime gets to be very much its own thing and such a incredible adaptation and evolution of its source material i would absolutely agree with that you know i think there's there's things i prefer about the manga and you know as a whole there's not many things i love in this world more than yasuhiko's gundam the origin manga because it is such a virtuoso piece of work in one of my favorite mediums um but this anime comes so fucking close to nailing it in so i mean not just nailing it, it doesn't come close it surpasses yeah. nailing it in so many ways it works so well as a standalone anime and it is a weird difficult project when you think about it it's this big flashback sandwiched in the middle of the manga that very much is there for a reason and so there's a lot of things the ova has to do to make it into these six sort of like short movie length projects and it just does it with aplomb and throughout i think there is a real sense of everyone at sunrise it being a passion project for everyone working on mm -hmm. this and i think particularly in these closing episodes sean i really feel like there's a there's a kind of a sense of like maybe this is the last time we do this not gundam as a whole but i mean this slice of the gundam universe mm -hmm. like this could be the last time we have Shuichi Keita in a booth doing Char in a project like this. This could be the last time we have Toru Furia, you know, the, all those sorts of things. And in some cases it is and it isn't. They're doing Hathaway, which is more in the Universal Century Tomino canon. But, like, you know, they haven't, there has not been another big project with Char or Amuro. And this could very well be their kind of swan song as those characters. And I feel like it really feels like they went to town on making this the right kind of like other end of the career Gundam work for the people who are in it, you know? Absolutely. As well as like, I think like innovating a lot of its um, like technical stuff with its using yes. 3d models for the mobile suits and stuff like that, that we then see like that work really flourishing fully in Hathaway 
um as like this is like this kind of bridge to that that like you know not to say that there's anything particularly lacking in what they do in the origin because it is incredibly good but it does feel like it is them like fully figuring out how to do the 2d 3d blend stuff that has become kind of like you know the hot thing in modern animation because we can do it so well now um that then all the lessons learned that sunrise learns on this project they then take and like push even further in hathaway and presumably in other projects in the future yeah i think that's very true it's this it's a great piece of gundam that is situated at this junction point of kind of looking back and in some senses saying goodbye to the past and embracing the future in so many mm -hmm. cool ways you know it's a it's a spectacular thing it was such a fun thing to get to break down i'm so glad we did all six on their own yeah this was obviously the way to do this and it was just it was a blast just to watch them to talk about them to hear listeners refer, you know respond to us about them i love this show man i love it to death but jonathan we are not yet quite done talking about Mobile Suit Gun of the Origin, because there is one other thing that, I mean, we obviously have have spent collectively across these, like, probably a couple of hours talking dedicatedly about, um, but now we have to, we will have to do an entire episode on the manga, Mobile Suit Gundam, the Origin itself. I don't know how the fuck we're going to, I don't know what the podcast is going to go like, because that is a, obviously we're not going to go one volume at a time and do a fucking half a year podcast just on doing volume by volume. We'll talk about the entire manga in its entirety um, to as a retrospective and kind of closing out Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. And I'm very excited to do this. But that's what we'll have to do next week on Weekly Suit Gundam. You <laughs>